So here's what's happened in, at the end of chapter 14. As uh, I just remind you of the setting, Moses 27 of Exodus 14 stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. While the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry ground, 1429, dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now that leads us to chapter 15, and the question becomes, how do we respond to such a great, dynamic, powerful miracle of the Lord? And the way that the people respond is with the earliest song recorded in the Bible, this is the Song of Moses, or it's been called the Song by the Sea, and it's a song of victory. And it is hard to imagine 2,000 years of church history without music. In fact, all of us, I think, love the time of the year, which is Christmas, where the carols begin to play, and uh, it reminds us of this great and glorious event that took place where salvation came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. This song by the sea is sung on the other side of the sea. It's sung in the wake or the light of victory. And that is the right response to the grace of God. It is to sing, to sing to the Lord and to determine that you will sing. Now I know that you don't always feel like singing. I know you can come into a church service and maybe that's not, you know, some of you wake up with a song on your lips and you annoy the rest of your family. I get it. How many of you wake up singing? You don't even need coffee. Some of you wake up and, you know, we need your addresses because we need to know how to stay away. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's wonderful to wake up that way. I like to wake up just thanking the Lord for, uh, you know, a, a night of sleep, to wake up with a new day ahead of me, to rejoice to thank him that I have a roof over my head, a beautiful wife by my side. There's lists of things that you can go through just when you wake up in the morning. And some of you are musically inclined, and so maybe that takes expression in a song. Imagine that there was never an incarnation. Imagine that Jesus never came into the world. Imagine that there was no Christmas, that we didn't have any of the grand songs of church history and the like. That would be terrible, that would be such an empty thing. But the good news is that we do have the songs. And it's amazing to me that even the secular world knows some of our songs. For example, they know Amazing Grace. They know I Can Only Imagine. And I've stood up at pulpits like this doing memorial services with definitely a mixed multitude of people. And I've watched people be touched by songs about the gospel. And one of the beautiful things that we do as a church family is we sing together. It is a very unique expression of the Christian church. To sing to someone is a very personal thing. You could call it an intimate thing. Now, some of you guys, when you were first courting your bride, how many of you serenaded your bride? Anybody want to make a confession? Uh, some of you shouldn't have done it because you don't have the voice to pull it off. 
and it may have made her think twice about you. But uh, some of you, you know, you can imagine, like, just for a moment, just imagine a husband and wife couple, and they're singing a love song together up on a platform like this, and maybe the guy turns and sings to the bride, and then the bride turns and sings to the husband. I saw this video, it was pretty amazing, where it was a, it looked like a messianic Jewish wedding. Some of you may have seen this. And the bride's coming in to walk down the aisle with her father. And she begins to sing to her about-to-be husband. And I'm telling you, man, it gives you chills. Because she begins to sing about Yeshua. And she begins to sing about Yahweh. And the groom, man, he, he's like, whoo, he's like dabbing his forehead. And the dad is like, uh, just he's in an attitude of worship. And then the, you, they pan over to the groom. And as she sings, you know, right as they're about to have their wedding vows and all of that, the groom just starts worshiping the Lord and the band is playing. I mean, it's a powerful, powerful moment. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2 that one day the Lord Jesus will sing over his people. Is that not amazing? Read Hebrews chapter 2 later in your devotions and you will sing, see a portion. It's right after, uh, I think it's about verse 10 or 11, where it says that the Lord will sing over his people. In fact, Jesus did sing. He sang the Psalms of Israel. Remember, the 150 Psalms in our Bible were the songbook of Israel. And Jesus sang a hymn at the Last Supper. Jesus did sing because that's what the Jewish people did. And those synagogue services lead us right into the early forms of worship in the Christian church. And so music is really important. Now, I'm not really a, a musician, per se. I'm a drummer. So drummers can't really claim to be musicians. Uh, that's a special category. But anyway, but the, the kids grew up with me playing the drums. And that was Shane's first instrument. And if you didn't know, Shane's my oldest son that's up here leading worship. And I had a drum set set up in the living room. And I know that uh, this is the nightmare of every parent that their child chooses to be a drummer. Oh, the things you have to endure as a parent. Now, I know it's tough with the trombone and all of that, but a drummer, oh, he's, he's over there crashing and doing all this stuff. But eventually, even drummers can lock in and play music, and it's an amazing thing. And so Moses leads a song, verse 1. It says, Moses, his name means he who draws out, and he drew the children of Israel out of Egypt by God's mighty hand. He was drawn out of the Nile. He draws the people out. That's Moses. And it says then, Moses and the sons of Israel, if you have ESV, people of Israel, New King James, the children of Israel, sang this song, the Hebrew word shir, it's spelled S-H-E-E-R, it speaks of an ode or a Levitical song or simply just a song to the Lord. It was vertical. It went to the Lord. And they said, he said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, he is hurled into the sea. Now, for some of you, it might seem a little strange that the people of God would be celebrating the, the demise of their enemies within a worship song. Uh, this is probably the hardest thing for the unbelieving world and even for some Christians to fully appreciate, and that is that the church 
can sing in light of God having victory over his enemies. Our enemies that God has had victory over are sin, Satan, and death itself. Praise the Lord. We stand on the other side of the sea. And we can say that he has dealt the death blow to death and to Satan. In fact, Satan will one day end up in the lake of fire. And we won't have to deal with him anymore. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we will see the Lord. And one day, the songs that we've sung in church, we will sing directly to him. Amen? We will see him face to face. Praise God. So the music of the church is important. And while all of us may not be great singers and all of that, when you come into the church, there's a unique beauty in corporate worship. In fact, the Lord says... He inhabits the praises of his people. Something happens when we begin to sing because it changes our focus. It changes, if you will, the atmosphere because we can walk in here with all kinds of heaviness and all kinds of difficulties and when songs begin to rise to the Lord, sometimes it takes a song or two or three to melt my cold heart on certain mornings because I haven't had coffee or maybe I was a little cranky. Any of you a little cranky in the morning? You, you take a couple songs for some of you. Like, you know, sometimes it's a little much when, good morning, how you doing? And you guys are like, how dare you ask me how I'm doing? And then songs begin to rise. You're like, and then it starts to come out a little bit more clearly. Yeah. Anyway, we're a tough crowd. <laughs> and Moses led the song. In 1995, to tell you how long I've been around, I was at a Promise Keepers event held at the L.A. Coliseum. This is where the uh, USC football team plays their games. And um, I got trained to do on-field counseling at Promise Keepers. So this would be that if anybody walked down to the field, I was there to try to help them in prayer if they made a decision to follow Christ. So I got access down to the field. And the L.A. Coliseum, I believe, if I'm correct from memory, seats over 100,000 people. And I walked down to the field and there was some closing music done and voices of perhaps 100,000 men began to sing to the Lord. I'm telling you, folks, it was one of the most powerful moments you could imagine. And I want you to take that thought and translate it to the other side of the sea because minimally there are 600,000 men singing the song of Moses to the Lord. Some people believe that the men started the song and the women responded in antiphonal praise, drop down to kind of the way the uh, text bookends. Notice this is 20, Exodus 15, 20. Miriam, the prophetess, we'll come back to that. Aaron's sister took the timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels, or tambourines with dancing, and Miriam answered them, answering apparently the men, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. This seems to be the chorus of the song. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Early on in the history of God's people, there are musical instruments, perhaps something like this. And Miriam began. Would it freak you guys out if I started dancing right now? <laughs> Pastor Michael, no. It's weird to watch pastors at weddings. I've done a lot of weddings, and it's always, will the pastor get up and dance? Could you imagine a pastor going, 
Anyway, never mind. That's enough of that. <laughs> you won't believe what he did today. Anyway, but musical instruments were around back in the day, and people were not ashamed to sing to the Lord. And I know it takes some time, you know, if you're new to Christianity to maybe adjust to that. I was an old rock and roller, uh, you know, back in the day and a drummer. And then, you know, we, my wife and I joined a church and we sang out of the hymn book for a while. And then the praise teams kind of came along. And, but music has always been a huge part of what it means to be a Christian. Do you have worship music in your life? Do you sing to the Lord? I'll tell you what, it can make all the difference. Sometimes you have to make a decision. Look at verse 1. You have to make a decision, I will sing to the Lord. You've got to say it. Look at the end of verse 1. You've got to determine it in your soul sometimes because your flesh will fight against it. And oftentimes when David opens a psalm, like Psalm 96, he says these same words, I will sing to the Lord. Sometimes you have to say that despite what's going on circumstantially in your life, you have to make a declaration as it were, I will sing to the Lord. And when you begin to sing to the Lord, it puts your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith, amen? So make a decision to sing. Some of you have got to turn off some of the other voices in your life so you can keep your focus where it belongs, especially in our day. And notice that they said, I will sing to the Lord. That's capitalized L-O-R-D. That's in verse 1. And that's to Yahweh. That's the name of God. Worship is first and foremost vertical. They were feeling a sense of awe. They couldn't have imagined this miracle. They couldn't have conceived They thought they were dead ducks sitting there as the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world, had them trapped up against the sea. They couldn't have conceived what would take place here. And I believe that when we get to heaven, what we have imagined is going to take reality. And I think we're going to be in awe for a long, long time. Just seeing God in and of itself is enough. But the way that the New Jerusalem is described and the way it says that sighing and, and tears will be no more and the curse will be no more. This is what we have to look forward to, if I can put it this way, on the other side of the sea. But it's tough right now. And this people group was going to go into the wilderness and they had some battles to fight still. But God was going to take them eventually as he will us to his holy mountain. Do you have music in your life? Do you have a favorite song? Do you have a go-to, you know, something that you like to listen to that lifts your spirits? I want to show you just a couple of snapshots. Speaking of salvation, go to the book of Luke in the New Testament. I want you to see some of the early songs that were articulated as Messiah was being announced as coming onto the scene. And those who were involved in the birth of the Messiah, there were several songs recorded around the events of the incarnation of Jesus. And take a look with me. This is Mary's song. Mary's the mother of the Messiah, and she's interacting here with Elizabeth, who has a miracle birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner. And Mary, Luke 1:46, said or sang, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Luke 1:46. Eight, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. 
For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud and the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. If you uh, go to the next section ahead, this is Zechariah's song. His tongue was silenced because of unbelief about what the angel said about the miracle birth and so forth. But when his tongue was loosed, uh, Luke 167, uh, his father, John's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And over to chapter 2, as the angels sang on that starry Bethlehem night, it says these words, Suddenly, Luke 2.13, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, that is an angelic choir, praising God. And what did they say or sing? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You don't have to turn there, but when you turn to Revelation 4 and 5 and you get a glimpse of what goes on in heaven, part of what's going on is praise to God. Worthy is the Lamb. The angels never cease to say in antiphonal praise, which means kind of a going back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen? Huh? You guys are out there. Okay. So... The songs of deliverance are in the lips of the people of God. And you might ask the question, maybe if you're new to the things of God, why does the church sing? Sometimes people ask questions like that. Well, we sing because we sing in light of the victory. Because it's one of the best ways to express a heart in love with God is to sing to the Lord. And I know we're all in process in terms of that, but Morgan puts it this way. There are moods of the soul that can only be expressed in poetry and music. Now, if you do enough research on a moment like this, biblical scholars debate whether or not Moses could have penned the 21 verses that we're about to see, or at least a good portion of them, in the moment. Could he have written such a song spontaneously? Well, we've heard some stories about some of the most famous songs in history that were penned on a napkin in a moment of time. Why couldn't God give Moses this song by the power of the Holy Spirit right in the moment? Because I think that's really how maybe the best songs have come is right spontaneously in the moment when they're the freshest, amen? So when things are fresh in your faith walk and God gives you something, maybe something to journal uh, I remember early on in my Christian life, I was an athlete and kind of a jock, and you know, I, I played the drums a little bit, but I, I definitely was not a guy that was into poetry. Well, I became a Christian, and the Lord started giving me poems, and I was writing poems down. Uh, my sister read one of the, those poems at Brennan and I's wedding, and it was one way that I was just expressing my love to God, and 
the Lord over the years has even given me some songs. I don't know if you'll ever hear the songs, but sometimes I'll study a passage and I'll, I'll have a song come to my heart and I'll put a song down. And this is just one way that the Lord ministers to us. Psalm 106, 9 through 12, if you're taking notes, says, Thus he rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up. He led them, the nation, through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. And they believed his words and they sang his praise. Psalm 106, 9 through 12. And so the sacred songs of Scripture, and I want you to imagine perhaps the whole nation by the Red Sea, maybe two million people singing this song together. What an amazing choir that must have been. Sometimes when Shane will, you know, pause for a moment and let us sing it out without any instruments, that's beautiful. Can you imagine a couple of million people singing to the Lord can you imagine, fast forward, brethren, the countless numbers of saints that will be together in our future, along with the angels that will make up a heavenly choir. Can you imagine what we're in for? And maybe we'll pause as Jesus sings the lead over us, and then we'll respond back to him, but we'll be able to sing it directly to him. This is who we are. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When uh, David uh, killed the giant Goliath who was threatening the nation of Israel, David returned from killing the Philistine and the women came out of the cities of Israel and they were singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. This is 1 Samuel 18, 6 and 7. And the women sang as they played, Saul has slain his thousands and David, his ten thousands. And Saul was in the corner saying, I don't like that song. What do you mean, me thousands and him ten thousands? And we all know what happened after that. Saul went wacko, right? But David is a type of the coming Messiah or the greater David. And we will be singing to the Lord uh, in our future. And I don't know what all the songs will be like, but we've just read about a song of Moses that we will be singing because I believe Revelation 15. Did I take you to Revelation yet? Oh, I want you to see it. Go over there. Sorry. I think that was first service. I didn't take you to Revelation yet, did I? Okay, good. Go to Revelation 14. Check this out. This is incredible. This is our future. So I want you to see what leads up to this. So it says, Revelation 14, 17. This angel swings a sickle over the earth. And another angel came out of the temple, Revelation 14, 17, which is in heaven, and he had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who had power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle, Revelation 14, 19, to the earth, and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress, 20, was trodden outside the city. And the blood came up from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, 
because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. Sounds like a red sea to me. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God or guitars, and they sang, notice, the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And they said, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. All the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. And if you keep reading, you'll notice that the wrath of God gets poured out. Seven golden bowls, look at verse 7, of the wrath of God are going to be poured out, and that will begin in chapter 16. And the wrath of God goes out, but the church, and I believe here the rapture church, is singing in heaven. Brethren, this is literally our future. Now, I have been, if you turn back to Exodus uh, 15, over the years I studied apologetics, and I, I spent a lot of time studying Bible prophecy And I've taught the book of Revelation uh, a number of times. And I remember early on, you know, hearing about the book of Revelation and hearing about end times events and, you know, hearing about the mark of the beast and how no one could buy or sell without this mark. And it was almost hard to conceive of how these events could unfold in such a diverse world with diverse governmental leaderships and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden... (laughs) As time has gone by, uh, we have moved into this being a more and more realistic uh, consideration in, in so much so that now they're talking about in certain areas you can't even go to a grocery store without proof of this vaccination. And so this is where we are, and, and I'm going to tell you something chilling, and I, I don't say it to you to scare you, but I just want to tell you this is where we are in the world. There's a man that's written a book on the history of communism and how when communism moves into a country, what happens. And he, he's gone and interviewed people in the Soviet bloc nations and kind of just what happened to people who were trying to stand against tyranny. And he said in China today, they have something called a personal profile on every Chinese citizen. That personal profile is almost like a credit score. It scores you, but it's based upon your activity what websites you go to, uh, whether or not you go to church services, dot, dot, dot. And here's the deal. You get positive points if you go to a communist meeting, for example, but you are dinged if you go to a church meeting or, let's say, an anti-government website, and they rate you, and you end up with a score. This score then determines your movements within a given city, whether or not your kids can go to college, where you can buy goods and services, And there's another layer to it. If a person or a family member who's a friend of yours interacts with you and that is documented, they get dinged on their score for being interacting with you because you have a low score. And folks, this is chilling. But you can be sitting in your living room having a conversation about shoes and what pops up? Ads for shoes. Because big tech has learned how to do algorithms on each of us with our phones and 
frequent uh, websites that we frequent and the like, and they can begin to kind of develop a personality profile on you. This is why you should thank God that you live in America, and you better just be paying attention to what's going on, brethren. Pay attention to what's going on. I'm not saying this to scare any of you, but I'm just being a realist now. The window is closing, and it is time for Americans to make their voices known, time for the church to make their voices known, not that we live and die with who's in an office for a given number of years, but just that we do what we can to fight the good fight. Everybody with me? If you're interested in that book, I, th- I believe the author is Rod Dreer, who's written on this. And, um, you know, he, he, set, he does something in the second half of the book, and I'll just tell you, this is what I've heard in interviews and stuff, that's very hopeful because he says that even people who had to face times like this found their solace and refuge in the word of God and in the promises of God. And even in countries where the church had to go underground, the church often blossomed in those kinds of situations. And I look around right now and I, I, I'll just say, the church should be swelling. We should have no room in churches. All around every city in America, there should be no empty seats in churches. You know why? Because we need the Lord and we need one another. And this is where it's going to take a prayerful passion on the part of Christians to be involved, but also to make sure that we are pointing people to Christ. And that revival we've all been praying for, let's pray harder. The record of Christian awakenings during the last 2,000 years shows that whenever the word of God is recovered, it is received with great joy, which is inevitably expressed in song. The medieval Latin hymns cluster around the fresh days of the monastic movements. This is R. Kent Hughes. The Protestant Reformation brought a rebirth of music to the church. When we think of the Wesleyan revival, we not only think of John Wesley, but his brother Charles, who gave us so many great hymns. And then the great harvest of souls here in our country in the late 60s and 70s brought a revival of scripture singing and the Maranatha music and all of that. When the word of God richly dwells within the people of God, it will be expressed often in song and gratitude. When God made the world, Job 38, 7 says, the morning stars or the angels sang together and all the sons of God uh, shouted for joy. I will tell you on a practical level, I believe that worship is a remedy for worry. Um, Because when we worship, it does something to our heart. Paul, writing from prison, says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, in, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, and the word for prayer there can be worship, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Amen? No matter what period of time we live in, and we live in an incredibly privileged period of time. We can, we can worship instead of worrying. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. David, running from Saul and had so many different issues and problems, he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, and he made my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust the Lord. When Israel defeated Jabin and Sisera, Deborah and Barak uh, sang a song on that day. 
they, the leaders led in Israel and the people volunteered and blessed the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. To the Lord I will sing. I will sing praises to the Lord, the God of Israel. Judges 5, 1 through 3. There's many songs I could tell you about, but we've only done one verse. So let's move on to verse 2. And yes, I will move quickly. The song says, The Lord, Yahweh, is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. We've had a movement of deconstruction in America where many young people have deconstructed their faith to the point where they have no faith left. And sometimes they're even rejecting the faith of their parents. It's a deadly game that's being played where people are hearing five-minute podcasts and making decisions about the historic Christian faith based upon very minimal information. And we have you know, famous worship leaders and the like walking away from their faith because they struggle with the idea of hell or you know, good people in other religions and so forth. But these are basic questions that you would think that people who have been around the church for a little while have already wrestled through. I'm not saying they're easy questions, but they are kind of Christianity 101. And it's amazing what's happening in our day in terms of people deconstructing their faith. But the Lord is my strength and my song. He is my Father's God, and he will be my God. I will praise him. And whenever the Lord is your strength, he will be your song. And let me flip it around. Whenever he is your song, he will be your strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He doesn't just give me strength. He is my strength. Amen? Verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Did you know that your God is a warrior? Did you know that in Revelation 19, Jesus is depicted as riding on a white horse, leading the armies of heaven, probably an angelic army. Some people think the church is there as well. And he's riding to conquer his enemies, almost like this ancient scene by the Red Sea. And do you know who's going to try to fight him on that day? It's going to be the Antichrist and his armies. And the Lord's going to come and destroy him with his glory and with the breath of his mouth. The Antichrist stands no, he's got no chance. But this is what the world has done because they think that the ultimate enemy is God. Karl Marx said the ultimate suppressor is God. That's why he wrote what he wrote. That's why it's influenced so much of the world. He says the ultimate suppressor is God and the next one down, or oppressor, is God and the church. And that's how, when people imbibe Marxism, that's what they think. God is the ultimate oppressor, and second to God is the church. And then Christian parents. Do you guys see what's going on here? This is the worldviews that are clashing right now. But the Lord is a warrior, and Moses said in the previous chapter, our God will fight for us. And that's what you need to know, brethren. Our God will fight for us, and not only will he fight, he will win. And here's another practical application. When you put on the armor of God, you are literally putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate warrior. That's what you're doing. You're putting on his strength when you put on the armor of God. And why would you put it on? Because you have a battle to fight. Not against flesh and blood, 
We know where the battle lies. It's in uh, spiritual uh, places and doctrines of demons, and that's where we see it. So here's what happened to the enemy as they sing. Various chariots and his army, he cast, God cast him into the sea. The choicest of his officers, the best, the greatest military in the world, he drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Down, down, down went the armies of Egypt. And enough of this nonsense about, oh, you know what happened? Here's a natural explanation of how they went across the Red Sea. They found some land mass and they tiptoed through six inches of water to get to the other side. No, they didn't. The Egyptian army drowned in that water and they went down into the depths, says the word of God, which is a large body of water. They went down, they sunk like lead, if you will. They had cement sandals on. Some of you who have been around Italian circles know uh, the idea of cement shoes, but we won't go there. Here's a staircase uh, parallelism, a repetition of God's mighty works, like we would sing in a modern song. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand, there's the repetition, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The right hand is power and skill. In the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. Thou dost send forth, verse 7, thy burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. They wanted Israel to make bricks with no straw, and now they've become chaff. And at the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up. Notice what happened. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. We get a little bit more insight about what happened to the sea walls. And the deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. God parts the sea with a blast of his nostrils. Have you ever sang a song like that? With a blast of your nostrils, O Lord. Right? Now this is what scholars call anthropomorphic terminology. That's a 50 cent term that simply means they take God who is spirit and give him human attributes so you can understand a little bit of what's happened here. God does not have a nose or ears or the like. He's spirit, but this is a way to convey the idea. This is how God's power was manifest. And the enemy said, here's what the enemy was thinking, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified. In other words, they said something like this. Those Israelites are nothing they're not trained in war. We're just going to dominate them. We'll kill some of them and re-enslave the rest. I will draw out my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And here's what God said. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then the song says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. Can you imagine the Egyptians watching the uh, soldiers wash up on the shore. They had to be amazed at what God had just done. He had destroyed an enemy that they probably thought they would never get rid of. Many of them thought, I'll never get out of here. I'll never leave Egypt. And that's how some of us feel with life's big, you know, intimidating things. Things like death and disease and all these difficulties that we deal with. Will these giants ever be behind us one day? And we will be on the other side of the sea, brethren, one day, so to speak. And we'll be singing praises like, who is like you, O God? The answer is nobody. Nobody is like the Lord. Not the gods of Egypt. Nobody. And of course, this has been proven emphatically 
at the Red Sea. There is no one holy like you, Lord, Hannah sang. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. That's Hannah's song, 1 Samuel 2, 2. And so you did stretch out your hand, your, thy right hand, 12, and the earth swallowed them. Here's another image. Uh, remember when Korah decides to rebel against Moses' leadership? This is Numbers 16. Just write it down for your notes. Uh, specifically, verse 32, Moses said something like this. Okay, whoever's on the Lord's side, come over here to me. Whoever's on Korah's side, go over to him. And then the earth literally opened up and swallowed the people on Korah's side. And they literally went down to Sheol in the view of the people. Ah! How many of you remember uh, the, uh, the movie Ghost? You remember that movie? You remember when the bad guys are grabbed by those little demonic dark figures? <laughs> they go down. Oh, it's great movie making. Something similar here. And I'll tell you what, when the people of Israel saw Korah and those go down, there was a holy fear among God's people. And so it's obvious that God is the true God and you want to be on his team Here's his love in his hased, in his loving kindness, that is his covenant love, his faithfulness, his mercy. Thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength, thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. Now you're going to see something that scholars call a prophetic perfect here. This hymn is prophetic in that it's going to talk about events that have yet to happen as though they have occurred. And one day, God is going to get his people all the way to his holy habitation. We are going to end up in heaven, and we can sing of it as though it's already happened, brethren. Here's just quickly, we can see the prophetic perfect here. The peoples have heard and they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. They couldn't uh, deal with them yet, but this is a prophetic perfect. It would happen. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, these are people groups, four regions that they had to deal with. Trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan, Rahab the harlot said, we've heard of what your God did and our hearts melted. They've melted away, right down Joshua 2.10. That happened about 40 years later. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they are motionless as a stone until thy people pass over. Third staircase parallelism, O Lord, until thy people pass over whom thou hast purchased. Notice, he redeems his people by the blood of the Lamb. Thou will bring them and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thy dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign, let's all say it together, forever and ever. God's going to bring us to his holy mountain. One scholar I read this week said, you could apply this to Maybe there's ambiguity here for different generations to apply it to Mount Sinai, to the future Temple Mount, and then all the way to the future New Jerusalem. We are going to end up at the Mount of the Lord. Amen? And we're going to be singing, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. He will reign and we will reign with him as a kingdom of priests to our God forever and ever and forever he will be showing us the kindness and the grace that he has given to us in Jesus Christ. And so the final few verses, the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea. 
The Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And then we see Miriam the prophetess. Moses calls her Aaron's sister. She was Moses' sister, but Aaron's the oldest sibling. So this is humility and respect. She took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. And Miriam answered, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. When Paul writes about the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, Prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and consolation. And I believe that if someone has a prophecy in our modern time, and I'm not talking about that they add to the Bible, the Bible is closed. I'm talking about something that would give encouragement, edification, exhortation, and consolation. That sometimes that prophetic word, if you will, will end up coming in a song. Over the years, I've been amazed at certain uh, songwriters and how many incredible inspired songs they write. I'm talking about now insight about God and so forth. And I think of Chris Tomlin because Chris Tomlin wrote a bunch of songs about God and about creation and stuff that just cause you to almost soar up to the throne room. And there are many gifted songwriters. But here's what I'm saying, that sometimes a word of encouragement will come in the idea of speaking forth the word of God in a song. That's why you need to be in corporate worship in the music time as well. Because you could get encouraged more sometimes by the song than you may by the preaching. Don't ever tell me that. But, uh, <laughs> but here's what I'm saying. The song can edify. The word of God edifies. Of course, we want songs to be scripture, and that's why they edify, but you get the point. And this is what Miriam did. She, she was a prophetess even before Moses was called a prophet. And I believe that the main expression in our day of what this might look like is that you would share a scripture with someone or perhaps the Lord gives a song to someone and it edifies and exhorts and it consoles. Thank you, Lord, for songs like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Thank you for the songs of Christmas. Thank you for the great hymns of the church. Thank you for the times when there was revival and reformation in our own land where songs began to speak of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Thank you for how music has cheered our souls through the ups and downs of our own personal journey, Lord. Thank you for corporate worship. And thank you for the song by the sea, the song of Moses. Because as we read in Revelation 15, we'll sing some form of it even when we are in heaven and on the other side of all of our trials. And we will get there. And that's the final word that I just want to share. As your head and hearts are bowed, we're going to make it. The glory cloud never left the people the whole time of the exodus. The Lord says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Paul says, he will bring me safely home into his heavenly kingdom. If you're not sure that you're a Christian, this would be a wonderful time to make sure to trust in the Lord, to say something this simple yet this profound. 
Lord Jesus, I believe you came into the world to save sinners. I'm a sinner, and I repent of what I've done. Please forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that you resurrected from the dead as you promised. And I believe that you're in heaven interceding for your people, and I want to be a follower of Christ. Change my heart. Renew me. Let me be born again of your Holy Spirit. If you've been wandering, you, uh, you would say you're a Christian, but you've been wandering. Maybe this is the first time in a long time that you've wandered into a church. Maybe you've been watching and considering the Christian faith. There's no one like our God. He's holy, yet he's incredibly loving. And he so loved the world that he sent his son. His loving kindness is better than life. And he will love you to the end. All you have to do is repent and trust him. Respond to his love. He will save you. He will seal you. He will make you his child. He will show you his plan for your life. You can use gifts for his glory. You can have a transcendent cause to live for and know that when you die, you will still be by his side and he will be by yours. Thank you, Father, for this great hope, songs of salvation. We love you. And as we sing this last song, I pray you bless your people and strengthen them in every way they need it. In Jesus' name.